It all started with a dream. This is so stupid! <laughs> In my whole life, <laughs> I got some things to say. I'm still slowly dying, but uh. hey, we all are. Good morning, Back Row Radio. I'm Matt. And I'm Mo. And you're streaming the morning side hug. Completely loving, socially awkward, and decidedly Christian. We are a Back Row morning show exclusively on BackRowRadio.com. On today's show, Matt shares his testimony. Plus the latest news, random facts, and more. But first, today is June 6th. No, wait, July. July 6th. July. It's all a blur this year. What does it matter? July 6th, (laughs) we have a holiday to celebrate. We do. It's National Fried Chicken Day. Mm -mm. Fried chicken is a greasy, deliciously (laughs) indulgent comfort food enjoyed all over the world. But did you know that the ultimate soul food originated in our own backyard, where Scottish chicken frying methods were combined with West African seasoning traditions to create what is now one of the world's favorite guilty pleasures. Fried chicken was an was an expensive delicacy up until World War II, but thanks to mass production techniques, we are now able to indulge ourselves in the cheap. Oh yeah, yeah, on the cheap in almost any city in the world. So on July six, we get our buckets of chicken and napkins because it's National Fried Chicken Day. You know. It is weird to think of fried chicken as a super fancy, like bougie dinner, you know? Yeah. Because, well, you know, we can get a whole trough of it from Albertsons or whatever. It's true. But it's delicious. But did you also know that lobster originated as a cheap meal? Really? Uh huh. On ships, it was given to like. The lower of the class, the people who actually worked on the ship, not the people who were traveling on the ship. Really? Because they could get it for cheap, and it wasn't necessarily considered tasty. It wasn't good, which I still (laughs) don't think that it tastes good. I hate lobster. I don't hate it, but it's nothing special to me. Yeah, but when when the the upper class realized that, you know, these people people these lower class people were eating this lobster and loving it and then they realized oh well this actually tastes good then they started i see mass producing it but making it weird expensive. So lobster and fried chicken switch places lobster and fried chicken <laughs> switch places what do you know i also do not do not like fried chicken so you know you don't like fried chicken Mm-mm, nope i like the skin off of fried chicken well i mean that's what's the i mean i don't like the chicken I am not a chicken fan. Oh, you just don't like chicken, period. I like McDonald's chicken nuggets. <laughs> Which barely counts. <laughs> Which is not chicken. <laughs> but I really... Really? You don't like chicken? That's I know. a strange thing to not like. I am not a chicken fan. <laughs> I know. How did I not know this about you I, at this point? I don't know. Our friendship. Because <laughs> it's one of those things that I, when I tell people, they're like, what? You don't... <laughs> Really? I honestly can't think of a single other person I've ever met who doesn't like chicken. But here's the thing. <laughs> I don't like I okay, I don't like biting into any kind of meat and then getting gristle or fat or a vein or anything. And with steak or pork or hamburger, 
or ground turkey. That doesn't really happen all that often, but every single time I eat chicken, I end up getting but, a vein. But that, I hate it. I hate it. But every every <gasps> kind, like chicken strips or things like no, that? No, that's that why I can eat breast? chicken nuggets from McDonald's, because they're the only ones that have never done me wrong. Weird. Okay. But it gets like that slimy, like, vein on the inside. I can't do it. Sometimes, yeah. I can't do it. And then I freaked myself out so much thinking that chicken is the one thing that if it's done wrong, I can actually really, really get sick from. Yeah. So <laughs> I do remember having that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so I just stay away from it. That you don't trust potluck chicken. Mm, not at you all. Do not trust anybody. Heck who... <laughs> no. Nope. Unless it came from Albertsons itself. Albertsons, that they deep fry that thing. Big old. Have you seen their fryers at Albertsons? Mm-mm. They are the size of a washing machine. So my full mom, of chicken. My mom works at a grocery store in Tennessee <laughs> yeah. in the deli department, and frying the chickens is one of her her main jobs. Yeah, and that may be another reason that I don't like it. I don't like the smell of fried chicken because that, that's Cause what my mom. Your mom always came home. Yeah, smelling like. I just can't do it. <laughs> There's so many things I do every now and then. I'll buy one of the whole like. Uh, rotisserie chickens yeah. from Albertsons every now and then, and I'll shred it and put it in a salad or in chicken noodle soup hey, or okay something that. like that. Just I'm that okay with that. I think because I can shred it, yeah, and I can. But that pull I'm out any you. of the gross bits. Yeah. Okay, so it's not so much that you don't like chicken; it's just that you have a mental block against it. I have it. trust issues with chicken. Got it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Enough so that it'll keep you from eating it on most occasions. Yeah. Enough so that if you all were to invite us over and I was like, what's for dinner? And you were like, Deidre's making chicken. I'd be like, oh, okay. And I'll then a, a day sandwich. later, I'll be like, I don't think we can make it. I'm sorry. <laughs> of course you'd play those kind of games. <laughs> it's been a, uh, been a week. It has been a week. How's your week been, Mo? you watch Hamilton? No, I oh. actually I know, I need to. Mm. I have been so we've recorded VBS last week right. and then it went live this week. Right. So I've been and I hate it. I I hate that I have had to be stuck to my TV for 30 minutes at a certain time because I've had to be engaging <laughs> with the kids and, yeah. and get on there and commenting and everything. And since quarantine, I have not really been in front of the TV. I've been really proud of myself. I've been mm. up and doing things and this has been so weird for me to sit in front of the TV for 30 <laughs> minutes every single day. It's a little different when you can't like get up and walk away if you wanted to. <laughs> it's true. It's true. But I really do want to watch Hamilton. I've actually never seen Yeah, that. I hadn't ever either. And, and then Rafer and I watched it. Oh, oh. Rafer, yeah. Rafer's out there. The guy that was on our show a few weeks ago out there in a full-blown colonial outfit. George Washington. Going to Walmart. Going yeah. to Blackwater Coffee Shop, which, I mean, he did mention on our show that, you know, his brother is on Broadway. Oh, right. Yeah. I forgot um, about that. Yeah. He's currently on Broadway in Beetlejuice, but mm. he's done many things. And so it definitely runs in Rafer's family, the theatrical side. And mm. so I can see where He'd that whole excited. side of him yeah. is coming out. A bunch of theater nerds. Yeah. Just, we, uh, we had Deidre's family over for dinner on Friday. And then once they left, about... I guess it was 8.30, we put the kids down, 9 o'clock, and I'm like, hey, this is two hours and 40 minutes long, but we're watching it. <laughs> so we stayed up, and we watched it, and it was worth it. My gosh. Yeah? I, I can see why that show is always consistently sold out. 
even to this day, like really? five years after it launched. Okay, so my kids are older. Yeah. Would they watch it? Should they watch it? There, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not, there are a few S words thrown in there every now and then. Nothing more than not what they lot. hear at school. Yeah, nothing more than what they hear at school. Um, and mm, a couple, like, innuendo moments. It's not, it's not overly explicit uh, at all compared okay. to even, like, PG-13 movies. Okay. Uh, and it's very good. It's yeah? just, yeah. They, I think they would like it. Okay. You know, of course, you know, it's a it's a mostly rap based yeah. uh, show, which they do brilliantly. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah, it's phenomenal. OK, so that's that's a that's a recommendation for all of you. If you haven't seen it yet, Disney Plus Hamilton carve three hours out and watch the whole thing. Cause it's OK, great. you know, what is not a recommendation for everyone. Hmm. And I've got to tell you, I was so disappointed in this. What's that? The Babysitter's Club on Netflix. Is that a new version? So it's a Netflix original that they've they've created. And I was so excited because I grew up reading the Babysitter's Club. I grew up watching the original Babysitter's Club movies. Okay, yeah. So I was like, yes, I can sit down and I can watch this and I can go let Mila watch it. It'll, you know, it's definitely something that she could watch on her own. It is definitely not something that she can watch on her own. They, first off, which, I mean, I was okay with this. It's no longer set in the original time. They've pushed it to... Sure, which you'd expect. Yeah. To now times. To now times, which, okay, sure. I can get it. I understand it. It made some of the stories a little awkward because there's a lot of the storyline that was based around the time period that it was, you know, mm. in early 90s, late 80s, and it's now mid-2000s that it, it's in. Um, but then episode four, like I'm so excited. It's a season, a series. Yeah. Watching it, it's so good. I'm getting invested in the characters. Episode four, Dawn comes along, which she's one of the main girls in in the Babysitter's Club, okay? She comes along. Her parents had just got divorced, which is true to the story. But her parents just got divorced because her dad is gay. That is not true to the story. They had to throw that in there. They really do do that, don't they? Uh-huh. They have to throw in... Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not against those storylines existing, but when you're changing something that's mm-hmm. already established... Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure they did that kind of stuff with the, the Riverdale, the Archie reboot as well. Yeah. So that wasn't even the bad part. No. Like I, they did that, and I was like, oh, "Really? Okay, they did that with the Roswell whatever." As well, yeah. Sorry. Well, then, same same episode, episode four, the client in this episode, the one that they're babysitting, is a little boy. He's born as a boy, but identifies as a girl. Ugh. And that's exactly what I did <laughs> when it shows in the episode. Like they're having a tea party. He and he and Marianne are having a tea party. And dressed as a girl, so you think it's a girl. You know, he's call Marianne's calling her princess, princess, whatever her name is, anyway. And then she spills tea on her dress. And so Marianne's like, that gives us the perfect reason to go pick out a new dress to wear. And so they go up to the bedroom, and in the closet, it's nothing but boys' clothes. And so Marianne says, well, this won't work, you know. What, where are all of your dresses? And 
the little boy says, those are all of my old clothes. All of my new clothes are in here. And so she was like, that's when I realized that whatever his name is, is living um, something about his body. You know, he doesn't feel who he is in his body. And so I was like, really? And Topher walks in and he's like, what are you watching? (laughs) (laughs) I said it was supposed to be a good, wholesome show. Uh, See... That's a, so that's a whole discussion we would have to have one one day on the show. Absolutely. But I mean, it's it's uh, the the key thing I know is adults who have the the gender dysphoria problem. I understand that as a as a thing. If you're an adult and you're struggling with this, then you know I'm not going to belittle you. I get that that's something that you're really having to deal with. Children, though, it has been proven by multiple studies over the last fifty years. That ninety percent of children who experience this kind of thing grow out of it. Yeah. By the time they're a teenager, uh, and we are in this weird culture where we are just reinforcing that. Yeah. To the point where, oh no, this is absolutely. There's no way you could be just a little confused. Mm-hmm. You definitely are. Yeah. Ugh. I don't want to get into it. I'm gonna get yeah. mad. Gonna get mad. Anyway. That's how I felt yesterday watching it. I was like, <laughs> seriously. Ugh. Fine. So anyway, that is not a recommendation. <laughs> you can't escape that kind of stuff with the streaming stuff now. I know. Like every every streaming service that's producing their own content, just like, well, there are no rules. We have yeah. to answer to nobody. And we will just do every single thing that we want to do. Yeah. Uh, agendas. <laughs> so <laughs> my story. Um, so today in this episode, we're, we're actually sharing my, my testimony where I, that I had recorded this past Thursday. Um, but I wanted to share a story about an encounter that I had the Wednesday before. Okay. Or no, Tuesday before. Tuesday before. So I was, I was rewriting my testimony for the, for the first time in a long time. Like fully scrap the whole previous version, start from scratch. Tell new stories, new versions, all this. And as I was doing this, as I was writing it, I was talking to Deidre and saying, you know, I just, I don't really feel the gumption to get up there and talk about all the stuff that happened like 14, 15 years ago because I'm not that person anymore. You know, it's not so much a part of my life and influencing what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And it's getting to the point where I want to talk about that less and less, be open about that part of my story less and less. You know, I feel the urge to just move on and not talk about what came before. And that's kind of why I've been slowing down on sharing my testimony. Mm Because there was a time I would give it, you know, seven, eight times a year. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure I counted up that I had given it about 25 times so far in the past five years. Um. And so I went to I went to Roswell with my mom. I took my mom to Roswell. She had an eye doctor appointment, and they were going to dilate her eyes, so she needed someone to drive her back. And we stopped at a Whataburger, mm-hmm. and it was packed, full of people. And I sat there for about fifteen minutes waiting on our order. And then, uh, as I was walking out, a random lady who I'd never met before stopped me. 
she didn't seem to be like a you know a random crazy lady you know that would normally rant and holler or anything but she stopped me and she asked are i'm sorry are you by any chance a a, a christian and i said uh, i i am <laughs> and she said i don't know i don't know why i just need I, I feel led to to share this with you and she started just talking about her own story her own testimony and she was getting really emotional and starting to cry she started telling her uh every like terrible thing that had happened to her as a child everything that had happened to her that she had done to other people everything things that she had uh had to make amends for all going through this whole list of of things that are very uh difficult moving testimony that she crammed into about a 10 minute conversation and she said i really don't know why i'm i'm letting this all out on on you but I just felt the the spirit was leading me to talk. Her husband was there, her son was there. They all again didn't look like crazy people at all. Yeah. Looked like normal people you would see at a normal time. Husband was kind of concerned. Said, "Let's let's go outside and talk because we're right there in the middle of the Whataburger with a yeah. thousand people." We go outside and she she uh, tells that. And so I'm thinking, all right, God put me in this position to to pray for her and so mm-hmm. you know I, I told her who I was told her that you know I worked with celebrate recovery and and uh, that I was honored that she felt led to share her story with me and I prayed for her and she was very excited she was hollering that you know that's what she needed she needed prayer and all this is a really cool moment moments like that have happened maybe mm-hmm. not to that extent but have happened a few times in my life yeah and so I left and my mom thought I was crazy for talking to some crazy lady. So I'm explaining to her, you know, sometimes this happens. Sometimes, you know, God puts people in your path that, that need prayer. And, and uh, I have no idea what's going to happen with her after this. But I need to be obedient in that moment to, and pray for her. And then uh, we got home that afternoon and I came to work to finish writing that testimony. Mm-hmm. And as I'm writing it, I get to thinking about what I talked with Deidre and I, and I stopped and I started laughing. I said, you sneaky God, you, that lady was put there for me, Uh not the other way around. (laughs) That lady was so willing to just sit there and tell her entire life story of redemption from the garbage in her past to a complete stranger and that did inspire me in that moment and i thought that's that's exactly why it's it's a it's the fact that i was able to put my life together and put that part behind me that i should be continuing to tell the story of everything that went on before mhm and I'm just, whew, i've i've never i've only rarely ever had that moment of you tricked me god you know <laughs> kind of thing but that it was a really cool moment so that story also is why i decided to put this on the pod or the show today in the podcast version as well because uh, we've talked about it i gave my testimony on our podcast but that was also back in 2015 yeah and that was the last time we put it on any of our back row stuff so uh you can find the video version of this also on our back row radio uh youtube page as well but that'll be coming up in the third hour and uh i'm excited for y'all to hear it all right. All right. Coming up later in the show, more of your embarrassing church stories. And we'll, next, no, wait, we oh, did that sorry. already. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, nope. No. Okay. Sorry. We'll be back <laughs> with more of the morning side hug right here on Back Row Radio.
morning side hug. We hope you're enjoying our mix of music this morning on Back Row Radio. We'll be sharing more of your embarrassing church stories when we come back, but first, here's Mike and Dooley. What's going on? It's here we go with Mike and Dooley. I am Dooley, and this is Mike. Mike. Now, was that was that your best intro? That's my best intro. Because I think I could do one time. I did the intro much better than you did. You think you can one up me? I think I can one up you. You really think you can? Why do you think people are one uppers? Uh, you know, I don't know. I find those people to be very exhausting to be around. Really? They ask you a question, and then you answer it, and then they want to tell you about how they did it, or they had it, or their experience. Yeah. Why do you think they do that? I, you know, I think they're not content with what they've got. Amen. I think. But that's here's true. the deal. I think we could gripe about those people, but we can also realize a lot of times we can be the same people we can very quickly slide into that same thing in our life of not being content with what we have and you know maybe giving off this perception of you know hey you know well mine's better but i think also when you uh, maybe they don't realize what i'm trying to tell you about how great i am i'm downplaying what you're you were telling me to begin with yeah so I don't understand the point of it yeah i agree you know it goes sometimes we kind of rob somebody of a blessing true does that make sense? No, that's true. You know, by 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 not celebrating with somebody, if they tell you something, and instead of we want to go like one up and beer on top of them, instead of just celebrating mm. with them, saying, you know what, that's really cool that God blessed you in that way, and that you have that opportunity or that object or whatever it might be, we kind of kill that a little bit and go, oh, well, wait, this happened. We kind of we one up them. We do, and it's all it's usually about experiences or materialistic things, and I, I always yep. wonder if those people are in, in, in innately not happy, and they get more yep. happiness yep. out of you being jealous of them. Yep. So rather than me saying, "Hey, congratulations, Dooley," on blah blah blah, yep. I'd rather you be a little envious of me. Yep. You know what? I think we need to share each other's joy. We need yes. to share each other's blessings. Amen. And you know what? And we need to be content ourselves with what we've got, what God has given us, and what God's blessed us with. Because the reality is, so many times we fail in that. So here's the deal. This has been Here We Go with Mike and Dooley. We hope you have a great day. Bye. Welcome back to the Morning Side Hug, a Back Row Morning Show here on BackRowRadio.com. I'm Matt. And I'm Mo. And we're going to kick off this section of our show with five random facts. I got to tell you something. Hmm. I listened last week. Yeah. And I don't like the whole five random facts song that I've been doing for the last two years. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are we going to do in its place? I have no idea. <laughs> but I heard it and was like, oh, you got to stop. <laughs> That's obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you love that? Don't you love when you've been doing something for so long and then you realize it's annoying? Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It wasn't really that bad. So here are five <laughs> random facts about fried chicken. So sad. So sad now. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the iconic KFC Double Down, which featured two pieces of fried chicken acting acting a bread? Huh? Acting as bread, sorry. Okay. Acting as bread sandwiching bacon, cheese, and sauce has split America with 50% loving it and 50% considering it an abomination. <laughs> Fool, you acting a bread up in here. I don't think I've ever had the Double Down. You never had it? I it mean, has, it's I mean, chicken, it, it so no. It, does, it hasn't stayed around. That's like a, it's like a gimmick that they throw out every now and then. Okay. But it's literally two giant chicken breasts. Yeah. <laughs> with cheese and bacon and stuff. In the yeah, middle. I definitely don't want that. <laughs> um, when asked their attitude towards fried chicken, fifty percent of Americans say they love it, and sixteen percent say say that they would marry it. <laughs> yeah. Um, 6% of Americans eat fried chicken every single day. 
What? <laughs> what? You can have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> I don't even understand. While 16% eat fried chicken plain, which gained the most votes, the next three most popular topping options are barbecue sauce, hot sauce, and ranch dressing. Ugh. Ranch dressing? Ranch dressing. Yeah, I don't know. And six out of ten Americans believe chicken and waffles belong together. Okay. <laughs> now this I can get behind. <laughs> What was it? Bruxy's? Bruxy, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Good night. <sighs> All of our California people know what we're talking about. I don't know where else there is a Bruxy's. I mean, it could I, be. I really think there's only a handful of them, and I think only two of them maybe are outside of California. I looked it up at one point. Really? Yeah. I remember, they're mostly California, and there's a couple. I think the other one is just like in Las Vegas. Like, it's still close to that yeah. area. Um, but yeah, who boy. Now there is a place. Oh, I don't remember the name. Eh, I shouldn't have said anything because I don't remember the name. <laughs> Kevin, I, don't, I don't know the key facts of the story I'm trying right? to tell. Kevin will tell us. <laughs> There's a place in Weatherford, which I'm sure in Weatherford, Texas, I'm sure that it's all over Texas, but they do chicken and waffles there. So Kevin, I need you to let us know what that place is called. Mm. Um, but it, it's pretty on par with Bruxy's. Yeah? Yeah. It's pretty yummy. Pretty delicious. Good stuff. But their waffle is the shape of Texas. Of course. <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. That's also a, a weird, iconic thing about Texas where that's all over Texas. Anywhere you're going to get a waffle from restaurants to hotel rooms to everything. It's in the shape of Texas. All in the shape of Texas. I know. I and agree. there's just yeah. something that's so much better about it, too. Like, those are the best, like, hotel waffles, the ones you know, that are shaped like Texas. I can agree. <laughs> but not every state can do that. That's like, true. Can you imagine Maryland tr- or Rhode Island trying to do it? That's such a teeny, yeah. teeny waffle. <laughs> you get a waffle strip. That's what you get. <laughs> New Mexico could make an okay waffle. Yeah. But I don't think any other state does it. I think it's only oh, Texas. Oh, yeah, it's only yeah, Texas. I haven't ever seen any other shaped waffle Iron in the shape of an maybe Alaska. There might be an Alaska-shaped waffle out there somewhere. Maybe that also could be a. You get the the nice waffle and the waffle trimmings with Alaska. <laughs> All right. Well, we have been sharing uh, over the last couple of weeks. We've been sharing your embarrassing church stories. We went on to our Facebook group, Back Row Baptist Church. You can find that at backrowbaptist.com and join. Um, we asked you to share us your embarrassing church stories, and you came through with uh, almost 100 of them. So we've been using this as a... Uh, Content filler for, for quite a while. I was going to say, it's a filler. <laughs> this is our last week of these, though, because uh, we're going to be done with them come Wednesday. Uh, but we've got a few that we're going to share with you today. We're going to start with Michelle Eisenbeiler. Beiler. I've never seen the name Beiler. Is it Eason. Biller? Eason, what I say? Eason. Okay. I feel Eason. like that's not different enough that you needed... <laughs> It is. Eason and Eason. Yeah, it's different. (laughs) All right. She said, I was on a traveling singing drama team while I was in college. We were singing in a church that had a tall platform with steep steps to get back to the floor. I was wearing heels, which I usually don't do, and caught my heel on the steps coming down and landed on my knees in front of the front pew. 
I just stayed there a minute pretending I was praying and then crawled up to my seat while trying to stifle my laughter. I mean, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. Play it off like you meant to. Yeah. Like, I have to pray right now. Boom. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Father. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one, Michelle. All right. Lisa Wallace. Yeah, we'll come back to Lisa. Lisa's is long. Uh, (laughs) Brett Harlan. Brett Harlan said, we knew it was about time for one of our pastors to retire when he kept fumbling between the words immortality and immorality. Ooh, okay, so you got to imagine the situations where that could have come into play. Talking about being in heaven and how you have immortality in heaven. We're talking about God. Jesus essentially has immortality now. So you can't kill him again. Can't kill him twice. It's not going to happen. And instead of saying immortality, immorality. I just think, like... <laughs> Okay. As as people who constantly fumble words. Exactly. <laughs> give give the guy some grace. Why not say hey, and you know, it's a joke. I get it. It's made to be funny. But why not say, "Hey pastor, maybe maybe you should think of two other words that don't sound quite as similar so that you don't you don't fumble over them each time instead of, "Hey pastor, you're done. Retire." <laughs> one of my uh one of my favorite Baptist jokes is uh, somebody please tell the pastor that the term is uh, butt dial, not booty call. Oh my gosh! Because <laughs> my my pastor, my old my older pastor now, uh, two pastors ago, made that mistake, but not in service like the joke implies. You know, he made it just talking at lunch or whatever, and he might have done it on purpose because he's that kind of guy. But I found it hilarious, and I'd never made that connection before. That those really do sound exactly the same. Yeah, but I mean, when one you consider, means something completely different. Yeah, when you consider the terms, yeah, that makes sense. Butt dial, booty call—it's <laughs> essentially the same thing, but so very not. <laughs> All right, so our last one for today is actually like four stories from Lisa Wallace Tristan. Uh, so she said, there are a few. When I was like seven, I threw up in church. I told my mom I felt bad, but she thought I just wanted to get up. She always believed me after I barfed all over the pews on the floor. Uh, next, then I stood up once and my panty girdle rolled down clear under my butt. I could feel the lump and knew others could see it through my dress. It made walking to the bathroom very interesting. That's like that other story we had Mm -hmm. from someone else Mm -hmm. with the old... Ratty panties that fell down in the yep. middle of service. <laughs> it was laundry day and she hadn't she didn't have her good underwear to wear. Uh, let's see. I got so tickled at something in church once that I had tears rolling, so I pretended I was crying and got up and left. Not my proudest moment. So I'm assuming it was something that <laughs> not from a like an illustration from the pastor. Something that you shouldn't have been laughing at. She was she exhausted. And she was delirious, and everything was funny. Yeah, that happens. Yeah, that's how I get when I'm too tired, (laughs) and I just laugh hysterically at things that aren't even funny. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes offensive, because you're laughing at things that are not funny. (laughs) But I can't help it. (laughs) But that's another good method, just like the lady who fell and pretended like she was praying. Yep. If you're laughing too hard, you got to pretend like you're crying and walk out. Go be hysterical somewhere else. I'll remember that. Go to the cry room. 
Um, then my youngest son was about four and singing in the church's uh, children's choir in front of the church. And at the end of the song, he decides to roll down the three steps. Everyone laughs, so he does it again. My husband stood up to go get him, and my son quickly got back in place, shaking his head at Daddy. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, I'll be good, I'll be good. It got laughs, Dad. I was getting laughs. They were, bi- they were eating it up. Right. I'll be good, I'll be good, I promise. Uh, let's see. And uh, my oldest at four had climbed under the pew in front of us, and after a few warnings uh, wouldn't come out, so my husband picks him up to carry him out. And my son yells, no, Daddy, I don't want a whooping. Uh-huh. And even the preacher laughed at that one. Yep. <laughs> my brother has done that when he was little. Yeah. I don't want a spanking, Daddy. I'm your best friend. I love you so much. <laughs> what a manipulative little snot that was right there. Yeah. I'm your best friend. I love you so much. Ooh. You know, there's a whole other story there Ooh. that, you know, we don't ever have to go into. But <laughs> that was what my brother would say every time. I love you, Daddy. You're my best friend. That is mean almost i can i'm imagining my son saying that when he knows he's getting his banking it would be mean for it would be mean for your boys to do it to you it was not at all mean for my brother to do it to my dad no all right well that's another story i need to hear then all right well coming up later in the show i will share my story we'll be back with more of the morning side hug right here on back row radio to the morning side hug here on back row radio sharing airtime with the best mix of christian rock rap pop and indie coming up next matt shares his full testimony but first here's not another bible study with kyle and matt hey matt i have a great story about the end of jonah Do you? and that is when when my son who's now 12 was a baby we were given a kid's storybook about jonah it was great told the story had great pictures and all that and at the end it said and jonah was happy is, is that is that how the Bible story ends? This is where I need that like meme or whatever from John Piper. Like I'm trying to find this nonsense in my Bible <laughs> because I'm looking right now and I don't see that. I see the end of the story being the question from God. Can I not care about the great city of Nineveh? It has more than 120,000 people. They can't tell from their right hand, their left hand, all these animals. And then that's it. Yep, that's it. Yep. I, I like the way uh, the Veggie Tales story ends. The pirates who don't do anything because it says that um, at the end the point is what you've learned from Jonah. It asks what 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 have you learned from Jonah about who God is and, and who God cares about. And what I've what I've learned uh, from Jonah is uh, really that main idea that salvation belongs to God. Uh, he gives grace. He gives mercy. He gives compassion, kindness sometimes to people that maybe we don't think deserve it. Uh, but the truth is, none of us deserve it, but he gives it um, out of his great love that he has for us. And that's a great reminder that we need to be people that don't just preach grace, study grace, sing amazing grace, but people that extend that grace to others and tell others how they can experience the grace of God. That's exactly right. Yeah. If you want to hear more about 
Not Another Baptist Podcast. You can find us at notanotherbaptistpodcast.com, on Facebook under Not Another Baptist Podcast, or on Twitter at NAB underscore podcast. Welcome back to the Morning Side Hug, a Back Row Morning Show here on BackRowRadio.com. I'm Matt. And I'm Mo. Today we got a bit of a special presentation as uh, this past week I was able to share my testimony. What are you laughing at? <laughs> Just special presentation. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> what, what, what should I call it then? I don't know. It's like it's like when we got to watch a movie in science class and the teacher was like, today we have a special presentation. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I gave my testimony at Celebrate Recovery this past week and I'm going to be sharing it with y'all now. So my testimony is a bit of a, a rough one in parts. Um, and you might learn something about me that uh, you had no idea and never would have thought about. And so just be prepared for that. But uh, other than that little preface, I'm going to let you listen for yourselves. Here we go. Hey, everyone. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who struggles with pornography, depression, food addiction, and codependency. My name is Matt. Hi, forever family. When I was 10 years old, my older brother moved out of my parents' house. He was 23 at the time. Uh, when he moved, he left a, a bunch of boxes stored in the large closet of that room. My parents let me move into his room after he left. It was much bigger, closer to the living room, and best of all, it had a huge, fancy waterbed. You remember those? Yeah. Nothing like sleeping on a giant water balloon, never quite sure when it would spring its first leak and drown you in your sleep. Quite the adventure for a 10-year-old. And in fact, one day it did spring a leak. Stray scissors opened a hole, and water began to shoot up into an arch and onto the floor. So my other older brother, who was still living with us, and I began a mad scramble, getting pitchers and big bowls from the kitchen, trying to get all this into the tub and back, because my parents weren't home at the time, and we were sure this was going to be the end of us. The floodgates opened, quite literally, as my bedroom became an underwater experience. Again, quite the adventure. In cleaning up that mess, some of my older brother's boxes were getting wet, so we moved them to the other side of the room. The bed was fixed, the carpet was clean, but we had not yet moved the boxes back into the back of the closet, so the curiosity overtook my 10-year-old level of restraint, and I started a snooping. In the third box I opened, I found a large stack of Playboy magazines. This was my first exposure to this kind of thing. And just like that carelessly tossed pair of scissors resulted in a steady stream of consequences that soon became an overwhelming flood, this too would be the first ripple that would one day become a tidal wave that overtook much of my life, my plans, my dreams, even my freedom. I've dealt with many different character defects over the course of my life. Anger, compulsive spending, anxiety... But there have only been four that really overtook me for large chunks of my existence. Pornography, depression, codependency, and overeating. And I just told you where my problem with pornography started. It continued after my parents bought a computer with the internet, that old, super slow internet that took about five minutes for one image to load. That was fun. It was still a relatively new thing to have a home computer, and they didn't really know that it was already overrun with that kind of smut. 
Anytime they left me alone in the house, I'd be looking up stuff I shouldn't. It quickly became my way to escape stress. But you may be wondering, what kind of stress did you have as a 10, 11, 12-year-old? Let's talk about the rise of my other hang-ups. My parents didn't have things the easiest when I was that age. I wouldn't actually know the full extent, of course, until I was much older. My dad used to be a big-shot radio news anchor for ABC News Radio in New York. Really good job. Fantastic career. Made a lot of money. That was all before I was born. He lived and breathed radio, and he convinced himself that he should buy and run his own radio stations. And pretty much from the outset, this was a failing venture. I didn't know how much debt the company and just us as a family were in, but I did know that it was a secret that I had to keep. My mom developed breast cancer, and the only doctor she trusted lived in Oklahoma City, so she stayed there for a few months, at which point my dad became a wreck of worry. Once she came back, having undergone surgery and begun chemo treatments, and us now in much more debt, my dad began to struggle with feeling like a failure. He walled himself off from my mom and I, even going so far as to add a literal wall in our house to build a new TV room where he would just sit every night. The both emotional and literal wall he put up caused my mother, who struggles with depression herself, to lose her grip. And I'm positive she wasn't aware she was even doing this, but at the age of 11, I became the sounding board for all of my mother's grown-up problems that I had no idea how to solve. My house was constantly on edge, overly tired, overly stressed, with only brief glimpses of calm or excitement now and then. My parents were both very overweight at the time, and the food choices being made were rarely the best in my house. My parents did their best to shield me from their problems, but in doing so, they would buy me expensive toys and things they definitely couldn't afford and dive deeper and deeper into debt. My mother also developed a depressing spending habit, depressive spending habit, but it was depressing as well. <sighs> my dad also had an anger problem, one that would flare up every few years. All of these problems got worse, though, when we finally had to file for bankruptcy and move here to Clovis. And in this time, I had managed to pick up my parents' hang-ups of depression, codependency, and overeating. And I developed the pornography addiction all on my own. And though there were short seasons of my life where I dealt with anger and depressive spending, these two, thankfully, have not been lifelong struggles. But these four, these four have been the dream team of ruining my life. After moving to Clovis, my dad was working out of town, and my mom and I were living in an RV park. I had no friends. We had no money. There was no joy in my life and a lot of stress, depression, and embarrassment. And looking back now, I know life wasn't really all that bad, especially when I compare it to many of the stories that I've heard from testimonies given just like this. But for me, at 13 years old, having spent the last four years in pretty much nonstop depression, stress, and anxiety, with those moments of joy coming less and less often, one day, I was done with it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to wake up one more day in my own skin. So I resolved to end my life. I had no knowledge on how to do this exactly, so the best I could come up with was plunge a knife into my heart. My mom was at the grocery store, and I decided... That's when I was going to do it. I wasn't thinking about my parents. I wasn't thinking about my older brothers. I wasn't thinking about my future. 
All I was thinking about was the constant pit of despair in my stomach and how every moment awake was a painful one. And I wanted it to be over. I wanted to stop feeling. And there I lay in my bed holding a knife over my chest trying to get up the nerve to go through with it when the phone rang, which made me jump and drop the knife. I answered it and it was my best friend from Hobbes calling just to see how I was doing. I grew up going to a Catholic school. I learned about God every day from first grade on, but it wasn't until this phone call that I believed he was real and he actually cared if I lived or died. Nathan hadn't called me for weeks, but suddenly, at just precisely the right moment, he picked up the phone. How could I ignore that? During our time in the RV, we did not have the internet, and since I wasn't 18, my access to pornography was cut off. But once our lives stabilized, my dad got a job in town, we had money again, we were renting a house, my parents got me my own computer with the internet. And I had this habit back in my life full force, and it became my main escape from depression. I only got caught by my mother one time, and I, of course, promised I would never look at it again. But in reality, I just committed to be more and more sneaky about it. When I was 14, I was invited to join the youth group here at Highland. I came, and I loved it here, so I stuck around for the next, so oh, 21 years. Going from a Catholic school upbringing to a Baptist church youth group was a bit like a bird building a nest underwater, but I eventually acclimated. I really started to understand the concept of God desiring a personal relationship with me here. After several months of attending, we went to a large youth conference in Texas in a big stadium. After several fantastic speakers and worship teams, there was an altar call for anyone who wanted to accept Christ. I felt that call in my heart, and I wanted to commit to this. So I got up and I walked the long walk down to the floor stage. But that long walk didn't do me any favors, because my mind began to run through everything this change was supposed to mean, including that I would need to stop looking at dirty pictures, which I already knew was my main escape from depression, something that I felt I needed. And by the time I made it down, I had already talked myself out of accepting Christ. But because my youth leader was with me, I went through the motions anyhow at the time, not realizing that I was now creating a false character I would have to pretend to be. So in early 2000, I pretended to accept Christ as my Savior. Now the good news for me was that I was already way ahead of myself. My parents had only let me buy Christian music my whole life. All my friends were Christians already, and even the girl that I was in love with was a Christian. So it wasn't hard to fake it. Some days I even believed I really believed. But if I wasn't being watched, I wasn't doing anything a Christian should do. I mean, I did believe in a lot of this, but I just couldn't convince myself to take that firm step forward for fear of how I would survive without my drug of choice. In December of 2000, I asked out the girl I was in love with, Daedra, the woman who would become my wife about five years later. I quickly gave her the title of my personal antidepressant because when I was with her, nothing hurt anymore. I didn't hate myself. Now, sure, I still doubted myself. I doubted her love for me for years. I thought so little of myself that I couldn't believe anyone could truly care for me the way that she did. But even then, I was never happier than when I was with her. 
my codependency kicked in pretty hard at this point. But when I wasn't with her, the depression would come back quickly. And the pornography habit would kick in. And at this point, it was a daily habit for me. One night when I was driving back from her house, I was listening to Pastor Skip Heidzig on M88 Radio. And I heard him talking about habitual sins and how over time our heart can become hardened to a point where we might never be able to surrender them. And this terrified me because I knew that that's what this habit was doing to me. I knew I didn't want to be enslaved to it forever. I knew that something had to change. I knelt down in my driveway, weeping, and finally took that step that I abandoned taking that first time around, and I accepted Christ as my Savior. I then drove back to my girlfriend's house and confessed this to her, and then we both drove to my pastor's house. And of course, I expected to be scolded for having faked it all the time, but they couldn't have been more happy that I made the right choice that night. Of course, one thing we learn in the early steps of CR is that turning your life over to Christ is not the same thing as turning your will over to him. I was kind of expecting that now that I made this decision, my bad habits would just kind of disappear like they seem to do in all those terrible Christian movies. But not only did my hang-ups not disappear, they didn't even lighten up. So even though I was now saved and truly was trying to grow in my faith, I was still playing a character, someone who didn't struggle with hurts, habits, and hang-ups. I didn't realize then that that was a character that most Christians play, some for their entire lives. I assumed it was only me, and I dared not tell anyone I was struggling and instead kept trying to fight it on my own with little success. I got my first job at the Wienerschnitzel here in town. It was a fantastic first job. I loved it. And once I started having my own money, I was kind of able to quell some of the porn habit a little bit because instead I leaned heavier into the depressive spending and the overeating. I'd always been heavy, but I gained about 100 pounds in two years' time. As I began my senior year, though, and my whole future was ahead of me, the pressure mounted. And now I was overeating and collecting photos on a constant basis. My wife and I were planning to get married right after she graduated the next year, so I finally got to a point where I was tired of fighting the porn thing, and I just decided I'd let myself enjoy it until we were married, because surely I wouldn't want to look at that stuff anymore after we're married. That's how that works, right? And that's when I went from bad to worse. I didn't realize just how much I was already keeping myself in check until I lifted the personal ban. I became obsessed with it, hours a day, nearly every day. And of course, this continued after we were married, too. And one night when my wife was at work, and I was in the middle of an hours-long binge of this stuff, clicking on link after link for more and more taboo material, I stumbled upon a website that sold illegal, underage photographs. The photo sets were labeled by ages, and you could purchase them individually, and in my endorphin-flooded visual drunkenness, I pulled the trigger on the worst decision of my life and set a tidal wave in motion. Now, just to be 100% clear, I was 19 years old, and I purchased a photo labeled 15 to 17-year-olds. However, since I was technically an adult and they were technically minors, this was classified as a legal adult purchasing child pornography. I never bought or ever even saw photos of young children. The girls in these photos were close to my age. Even my wife was only 17 at the time. 
and it appeared like the photos were taken by the teenagers themselves. And frankly, that's how I justified it to myself. I said, this is okay. These girls are only four years younger than me at the most. But in reality, I was putting money into a website and an industry that exploited children of all ages, and I knew that at the time. But I had tunnel vision in that moment, and I put in my credit card number. I hate that I made that decision. I have no excuses for it. I knew what I was doing, and I did it anyway. I had those photos for only about a week or two before I trashed them because my guilt and shame were eating away at me. I was worried that I was starting down a slippery slope because, frankly, I was surprised I let myself go even that far. And I didn't want to know if I would go farther than that. So I tossed it, tried to dial back my use, and tried to get better. That habit didn't lighten up too much, but at the time, I was finding success in losing weight. I had begun a fasting regimen and had lost something like 60 pounds. College was going great. My marriage was good. I had a job here at Highland, and nearly a year had passed since that incident. And then in August of 2006, my phone rang. The campus police said that they were sending a car over and that I needed to come into the station, and I immediately knew why. Inside were two ICE agents who began to question me about the purchase I had made a year ago. I admitted everything. They took my computer with them and said they'd be in contact with me. All this happened while my wife was in a couple classes. She came home to me sitting in our living room, me weeping and hyperventilating. And I had to explain to her what I had done and how long my problem had been going on. And I expected her to leave me. Uh, I thought this was it. Life was over. I even remember thinking in that moment that I should have used that knife when I was 13. But the first thing that she said to me was, if you think I'm going to leave you, I'm not, because I love you too much. I didn't deserve that much grace from her. I still don't. I will never be able to earn that gift of love from her, not for as long as I live. Deidre committed to standing by me through the worst of times. Two months later, I was actually arrested and driven to Las Cruces, and my wife and family came to get me. It would be two more years before I was actually tried and sentenced. So in those two years, I did my best to stay positive. I was encouraged to attend Celebrate Recovery at Faith Christian Family Church, and I did. And it just so happened that my first night there, they were starting a men's sexual integrity small group. They had no idea I was coming, but God did. The group really did wonders for me as I began to get a handle on things. In fact, before I knew it, I had gone over six months without so much as a wayward internet search. They asked me to take over as leader for that group so the current leader could launch a different group, and I jumped at the chance. I was so pumped that things were working. There was only one problem. I wasn't really doing the steps, at least not all of them. I didn't have a sponsor or an accountability partner. I did not do that inventory. No, sir. And forget about making amends. No, no thank you. I don't like confrontations. I believe that's why on the very day that I made it to one year of freedom from pornography, I relapsed. The very day. I hadn't developed the tools necessary to avoid the temptation when it arose, and it caught up with me. I stepped down as leader. I sunk into the back of the building every week. 
My relapses would happen every few weeks at that point, and I was so depressed, I had gained another 100 pounds. At this point, in my absolute lowest mental and physical state, I was sentenced to a merciful six months in prison. The prosecutors were pushing for two years, but the judge showed mercy because of the number of family and friends I had standing behind me in court that day. The biggest blow, though, was that I would have to register as a sex offender for the rest of my life. That part might have shocked you if you didn't know my story already. And I could easily leave this part out of my testimony and it still makes sense. But I want you to know the full picture, all of the consequences of my actions, and more importantly, everything God has redeemed me from. So two months later, I surrendered myself to Latuna Federal Correctional Institute in Anthony, Texas. Prison is not a whole lot of fun. I wouldn't recommend it. One star. Six months was a short sentence, but it felt like forever. The first few weeks I was there, I had convinced myself that I would be released soon because surely God didn't want me to be there. I remember writing letters to my wife saying that I believed it was going to happen any day now. Any day now, they would call my name and say I'd be being let out early. That, of course, did not happen. And after fighting it with my denial for a couple of months, the reality that this was my life now finally set in. My depression was overwhelming, but there was no pornography, and the food there was disgusting. So instead of fighting my depression with those vices, I just sunk deeper into that depression. At one point, this is the first time that I'm sharing this openly, so give me a second here. At one point, a man even bigger than me grabbed me by the throat and shoved me into the concrete wall of my cell because someone had stolen a magazine of his and someone else told him that he thought I had done it. I had not. He choked me to the point where I nearly passed out. I had bruises on my neck. He threatened to kill me if I ever came near his cell. Luckily for me, later that week, he got himself put in solitary confinement for a month, and then he was moved to another unit, so I never had to run into him again. But once he let go of me, I slunk into my bed, and I put on my headphones. You could pick up Caleb there, and that was a great blessing for me many times, but when I turned it on in this moment, Casting Crowns, Praise You in This Storm was playing. And that moment was the moment that I lost it. Not in a good way. I was angry. I was furious at God for letting me go through this. In my mind, I was screaming at him, Why? What is the point of all this? And for years after that, I couldn't listen to that song. Anytime it came on the radio, I had to turn it off, and I wasn't even able to tell Deidre about that for a couple years. But about one one week later, One day I woke up and my depression was gone. It wasn't just me accepting what was happening. It was like a switch had been flipped in my brain. It was totally and completely gone. I got a Bible in the mail about this time and I decided to try and use my time to read through the entire thing cover to cover. 
pulling out every verse that spoke to me and writing it out for myself. I joined the Toastmasters group inside and the praise team for the church services. I began to lose weight again. I began to make friends, be creative, accomplish things while on the inside. I began to have good days. In fact, several of my best days happened in there. Days when I laughed and genuinely loved life. Days that I felt free even on the inside. And as soon as Soon I realized the point of all this was to remove me from everything I had relied on instead of God, including my own wife. She was never supposed to be my personal antidepressant. I wasn't supposed to run to her for my self-esteem. I was supposed to run to God, and he was using this six months to teach me how. When my wife and I finally reunited and I was now starting my three years of probation, I was on top of the world. But that old temptation quickly reared its ugly head, and honestly, I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't ready, and I slipped up again. Not a long, drawn-out relapse, just a hiccup here and there. But I learned after my first three months that when I went to see my probation officer for the first time, I was going to be polygraphed. And they were going to ask me a specific question. Had I looked at any kind of pornography? Because apparently that was something I was not allowed to do. No matter legal or not, I was not allowed to look at anything. And so, of course, instead of trying to lie and beat a polygraph test, I admitted that, yeah, I had looked at something. And we were told that instead of driving to Roswell every few months, they needed us to be in a city that had a federal probation office. So we wound up moving to Albuquerque. Just as our lives were starting to get back to some normalcy, my actions caused us to have to uproot those lives again and move to Albuquerque. It was a hassle, but it actually went rather smoothly. There were no active CRs there at the time, but I had the leader's guide that I would read through, along with other helpful books. And I was even graced with free, free sessions with a Christian therapist that really helped me work through a lot of things. Daedra, this whole time, had done her best to make things easier on me, but to her detriment, as she began to bottle up her emotions. And this was something that we had to work out during this time also. This time away prepared us for living on our own. It gave us a chance to grow into better people, to get some of our bad habits under control. I had a few more relapses during this time until on June 10th of 2010, I looked at pornography for the last time. That was our five-year wedding anniversary on the day. And I remember after relapsing that day, looking at myself and really thinking about everything I had put her and myself through in those short five years of our marriage. And I finally had this moment of, this can never happen again. And had it not been for everything God had done for us and for everyone God had put in my path, I don't think I could have made that stick. Soon after that, my probation was over and we moved back to Clovis because, you know, nobody ever really escapes. <laughs> I got back into Celebrate Recovery and started really working the steps correctly. I was tempted many, many times to fall back into that old habit, but God has guided me through each time so far. 
A little while later, I was asked to help relaunch the Celebrate Recovery program here at Highland alongside my brother Cipriano, who now heads up the CR at Central Baptist. I've been blessed to sponsor many men, lead step studies, facilitate small groups, and now I have proudly served as the ministry director here for the last few years. And this past June 10th marked a big milestone, and I'm beyond excited that tonight I get to pick up my 10-year coin. And while I will remain vigilant to not let my guard down, I am comfortably in a place to say that this is no longer a struggle for me. God has rewritten this part of my mind, and I am grateful. What about those other three hang-ups? My self-esteem is much higher these days, and I'm not nearly as codependent as I used to be. But like most people who struggle with codependency, it's hard to put a cap on that entirely. But I do feel that I am much better at saying no when it's necessary, that I don't feel the need to people please all the time. And I haven't really worried that my wife secretly doesn't really love me and this whole marriage has been some elaborate hoax to just play a trick on me for at least a couple years now. Depression has largely left me alone. I've had a few bad days over the years, but most of them I would count as situations where anybody would feel this way. However, it did come back for a while when we lived in Albuquerque, and since I was still actively fighting any use of pornography, I decided to eat instead. And so for the third time in my life, I gained about 100 pounds in a matter of a couple years. This is a habit I still struggle with. But as I continue working the steps, I'm starting to finally see real progress. I'm 75 pounds lighter than I was in November. <laughs> I have still got a long way to go. And this whole COVID-19 thing really tossed a wrench in my progress because I was 97 pounds lighter than I was in November, and I had to gain a chunk of that back, and now I have to lose it again. But I'm feeling more motivated than ever before and really think God is guiding my steps here. I just need to, you know, keep following them. For several of the last 10 years, I've given my testimony quite regularly. In fact, I've shared my testimony at least 25 times at 10 different CR programs. And the original video version of this that I recorded in 2015 and put on YouTube had been viewed over 35,000 times, and many of those being at CRs across the country. And I am honored by all that. But since I became ministry leader here, I think this is maybe only the second or third time, and the first time I've shared here in a long while. And I think it's because as time has passed, and the incident that started all of this is now 14 years behind me, I feel less and less like that person. I don't really like to think about who I was back then. I run a radio station like my father did. I get to work and minister in this church every week. I have two amazing young boys looking up to me. My wife and I just celebrated our 15th anniversary. I am beyond blessed. And I realized as I was preparing for tonight that that is the reason to keep telling this story. I broke everything. And God came in, swept up the pieces, and built something beautiful. What's coming next? I don't know. But I can honestly say these days I'm not terrified to find out. The biggest thing I've learned in all this is the easiest thing to do when faced with fear or pain or anxiety is to keep it a secret. But the burden of that secret is what will crush you. My favorite Bible verse right now is James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. CR has taught me that if we're going to get better, 
If we're going to heal, we have to stop wearing these fake smiles, stop saying, I'm fine, and confess your struggles. Drop that stone off your shoulders and use it as a wave breaker to stop the ripples of your past sins from flooding your life today. I pray that I'm able to teach that lesson to my boys so that they don't make the same mistakes I did. But I rest in the fact that the same God that has been there for me all along will be there for them with the same unconditional love and unearnable grace no matter what comes their way. I want to share one last thing. If I can. My dad died a year and a half ago, just after Christmas. He had a long battle with cirrhosis of the liver that eventually overtook him. I know from talking with my mom now, since that happened, that he felt like a failure for at least most of my life. First with the failing radio stations, then with the more modest life than he envisioned for his family. But the biggest blow to his self-esteem was when I was arrested. He had to see my photo and a whole story devoted to me in our town's newspaper, a whole segment devoted to me on the local news. He had to drive to bail me out of jail. He had to sit in the courtroom as I was sentenced. He had to drive me to the prison to surrender myself. He had to see me struggle to beat this addiction. And all the while, I didn't realize he was more mad at himself than he was at me. I didn't know about the nights that he would stay up crying, ashamed at the job that he had done raising me. I never blamed him for any of my habits, hang-ups, but he blamed himself. I knew that my depression came from my mother's side of the family, but I didn't realize that my self-image problem, my codependency, came from my dad. He wore a really good mask. He was a kind man, a hard worker, very personable. Everyone who knew him loved him. And he did everything that he could for his family. And we may have had our differences from time to time, but I loved him with all my heart, and hundreds of my best memories come from simple conversations over long drives. And it kills me to know that he was hiding so much pain. And I realized that it was that pain, that lack of self-worth, that kept him from accepting Christ as his Savior. But I rejoice to know that he finally made a decision in the last days of his life. For a final few weeks, he finally surrendered. And looking back on that time now, I can see how his demeanor did change. Even with death looming over him, he often had a peace about him. I'm so grateful for my parents. I am honored to be my dad's son, and I can't wait to see him again. I can't wait to see him as the perfect image of himself, the way God sees him. And I hope he'll see me and be proud of what I've become. Because it's been quite the adventure so far. Thank you for letting me share. And that was my story. Thank you so much for listening. And uh, if someone needs to hear it, you can pass it along. Uh, again, the video version of this is on youtube.com slash back row radio. You can find it there and uh, share it as needed. Coming up next, we share something that we love. We'll be back in just a few with more of the Morning Side Hug right here on Back Row Radio.
Welcome back to the Morning Side Hug as our show is coming to a close for today. But first, I want to share with you something that I love. You doing the Macarena over there? What are you doing? No, I was doing VBS <laughs> motions. That's my something that I love. So this year, we went with um, groups, the Rocky Railway theme. Mm-hmm. And all. so I'd, this is only my second year ever using group there their bbs um you know years past i've always used lifeway and i have tons of of those bbs songs still stuck in my head yeah you know bubbling up bubbling up um (laughs) but the group vbs songs are all hymns or i shouldn't say all 90 percent hymns that's right they're like repurposing yeah, older music, praise and worship songs that everybody knows, and they've just kind of put a spin on it to make it more kid friendly, more energetic, more yeah. lively. Um, but because everybody knows them, you're not learning the words and learning the motions because you already know all the words. Um, so I love, I love the playlist that group has for Rocky Railway this year. It's a lot of fun, but. I did have one of our our oversaved moments with a friend of mine. <clears throat> I don't know if there's a way to like search oversaved when you you go to our radio station, but if there is, then you can find our whole conversation on what it means to be oversaved. But my friend, who was my assistant director, Jen, she was like, I don't know any of these songs. How do you guys know all the words to all these songs so quick? And I was like, well, Jen, they're all hymns that we grew up listening to in church. And she's like, oh, that's why I didn't grow up going to church. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. And see, the the thing that I don't like about that kind of thing is that now, anytime that song ever comes up in a normal church situation, you're You're going to be wanting to do the motions and have the VBS version in your head. Nah. I hate that. We even <clears throat> sang um, Lions, which is a skillet song. Really? Uh-huh. Actually, Mila and her friend Emma sang that song as a special Sunday morning. Oh, it was okay. BBS Sunday. It wasn't but like a part of the curriculum. No, it was part of the curriculum. Really? Yeah, there were motions to it and everything. Now that's pretty cool. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. I'll give it that. I'll give I am that. telling you, they had so many That good... should be the thing. Forget the old hymns or whatever. We yeah. should be repurposing... Good Christian music as a part of these things. Well, and we did like so. Lions was one. Same power was one. Same I don't, power. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave. The same power. Oh yeah, yeah. that's not Jesus. the name of the song though, is it? It's the name of the song in VBS. Is it? Same power. Um, and then they did Power in the Blood, which is you know the old classic. Uh huh. Um. Anyway, it power, was power. Wonder working power. Old anyway, song, man. That's my something that, that I love. And old rugged cross. Those are the two oldest I know. Oh, and old rugged cross was another <laughs> was it one. one of the two? Yeah. Yep. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. Yep. It was fun. I'll let you have that one. That's Thanks. A good one. I appreciate you <laughs> approving of the something that I love. Let's close out our show with the Bible verse for the day. Ecclesiastes 5.18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun for the few, uh, sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Whew. It's the worst when you mess up the Bible verse. It is. That's the worst. Thank you. <laughs>
Thanks for joining us. There's a Macro Morning Show every weekday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific. Mo and I bring you the morning side hug most of the week, and Bubba and Anna bring you church nerds every Friday. Make sure you're following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Backrow Radio, and join our laughter-inducing Facebook community, Backrow Baptist Church, by going to backrowbaptist.com. If you miss a morning show, you can subscribe to the podcast version of the Morning Side Hug on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most podcast apps, and catch up on our new Monday through Wednesday shows. The podcast of our Throwback Thursday episodes are reserved for our Patreon donors as well as other bonus content and incentives. If you listen to Back Row Radio and want to support the work we do, please consider partnering with us by going to backrowradio.com slash partner. Any size donation will get you our private podcast feed. That is it for the show. We'll be back tomorrow. We hope you will too. Once again, I'm Matt. And I'm Mo. Remember that Jesus loves you. Share your story. And if you see us around, we love us either. Bye.